What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. morning, good afternoon, good evening, all over the world, wherever you are tuning in from, be it by phone, be it live, be it on the internet or any of my social media platforms, good morning, good afternoon, all of that, and welcome to Patricia Adams Live. We have a special guest today who is going to shed some additional light on the subject matter of men who are abused. This is not something that society or, shall I say, in quotes, polite society wants to discuss. The things that should not exist are the things that people say, this isn't happening, this isn't real, this is impossible, this doesn't happen to men. How is it that a man can be abused, especially on a physical level, on a mental, emotional, financial, or sexual level? No one in polite society wants to hear that, especially when it is given to this only happens to women. This only happens to um, certain classes of women, certain types of women. This is a human condition. This is a human issue. It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of light versus dark, good versus evil. It's chaotic. It it has its highs, its lows, its honeymoon period. It is a typical abuse cycle taken to another level when it is shrouded in the mystique of femininity. And that's the best way that I can explain this is that 
when it happens to a woman and a man is doing it. The signs are similar, but the levels and the degrees that are used to create this illusion are quite different, quite different. Because you have to remember that men tend to be objective and women tend to be more emotionally driven. So men are objective by design. Women are recipients of that objectivity. And just to just set this level playing field, I've had other men on the show that I've talked to about abuse and the abuse that they've gone through as men. This will be different in the sense that today I have someone on the show who not only was married and in an abusive situation, also had children in this relationship. And most of the men that have been on the show, either their children were teens or grown or out of the house, and they just continue to stay. They stayed for 10, 15, 20 years or more before they realized, hey, this is not normal. This is not okay behavior. Andrew Payne, on the other hand, was a young father, young husband, and in his situation, this is where I am so grateful to him for coming on the air this morning. Andrew is in the United Kingdom, and I am in the United States, so we are bridging the gap across the waters in this moment and space of time. And I can only tell you to men who are young fathers in a relationship, single, married, separated, divorced, staying under the same roof for the sake of the children, trying to make it work when it was never designed to work. That's the difference is that if you are in a relationship where someone wants it to work, then all the effort will go toward building up that house. And and I incorporate my understanding on a lot of different levels. And, and I will say from a biblical perspective is that the Bible says that a wise woman builds her house and a foolish woman tears it down. Can't get any simpler than that. Simply speaking is that if your relationship is about building you up, your children up, your environment up, building something together. But if your relationship is constantly tearing things down and only repairing things, never to really fully recover and restore it, this message and this story is for you. Staying because of the children, you are not doing the children a favor. You're doing them a disservice. You're doing yourself a disservice. You're doing the community as a whole because at some point in time, these children are going to grow up and become a part of society and either they're going to function in society for the good or for the evil. 
and they're going to have to navigate that path based on what they've experienced already. They're going to have to choose constantly between doing what's right or doing what's wrong, doing to them what was done to them and transferring that on to other people or saying, I'm going to rise above that. The story is still being written for young fathers. I read an obituary the other day of a mother and a father who raised three or four children, all adults. They managed to get to the great-grandchildren, and they wrote a scathing obituary. The mom died at like 80 about her life with her. And when the father died, they didn't write anything about him. They didn't light any candles on the website. They didn't um, post any flowers on the website. They didn't post any family photos of them on the website. But for the mother, they wrote this scathing obituary, and it was as if the father never existed. That tells you a lot about how children perceive the role of a father, that all these things that this woman did to the children they saw the father as not being present. Therefore, he was not present during their life and during all of this. Therefore, he was not present in death. I want you to think about that, is that how you choose to navigate your life as a young father in a situation like this determines the value and the worth of the children that you brought into this world will add or subtract from the common good of man. Andrew Payne, I want to thank you so very much for waking up and being a part of this show. And in light of the fact that you have children and your life is really, really, really centered around your children, and I respect that about you. We organized the show based on the time slots that would work for his family. And, Andrew, welcome. Hey, no, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yes, love the accent, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Love the accent. I can't explain. It's like America loves the accent, but... Maybe not all, but I'm a fan of the accent, most definitely. Oh, bless you. Oh, I, bless you. I I just wanted to set the tone for the purpose of this show. We're doing this on July 4th. We are yeah. crossing the water. We're doing this trans globally. Yeah. And I thank That's... you for making this investment in us in the United States and around the world because this is an international platform. People from as far as Turkey... Africa are listening or will listen to this show later. It's distributed in all of the major distribution areas and iTunes, uh, Patricia Adams Live and iTunes. Subscribe to the channel, download after the show. The show will be available in an MP3 format. You can download it to your phone. You can listen to it later. You don't have to be online to listen to it. You can literally download it from the cloud to your phone or your device or your computer or whatever. And, Andrew, I really want you to tell me your story. And I prefer for us to have an organic conversation around this. 
And I, I, I first want to ask this question is that before you got married, what was Andrew like before you got married and had children? Um, well, I think probably what was Andrew like before I met my ex-wife? Um, I was definitely, uh, I was a good boy. You know, hey, listen, my dad was a vicar. My dad was a, a Baptist minister. So I was brought up to be a good boy and to uh, treat people with respect. I, I guess I was a, a bit of a people pleaser. And I wasn't someone that was really in touch with my own boundaries, particularly. Um I was quite bright for, for the most part, um, probably slightly immature, a little bit as well. Um, and like most most guys in their late teens, early 20s, you know, I, I, I had girlfriends. I liked playing football. I liked drinking beer. I was a churchgoer as well. And, I, you know, I was quite busy on the on the youth scene. And um, so, yeah, and, and life life was generally pretty good. You, you'd have met me and said that I was fairly confident uh, I did a lot of kind of performing art stuff, you know, music and, and, and drama and stuff. And so, um, and that was before I met my ex-wife. I think, you know, some people say, well, look, listen, you know, most people fall into abuse because they meet someone who's amazing. They they fall head over heels in love. The person is truly amazing at the beginning. And then bit by bit it unravels. Or a, a good friend of mine who's a, a female she, her guy that she met was amazing and it all changed after they got married and then he turned into a total nightmare. Um, but I think there were other ways into abusive relationships. And I think for me, when I met my uh, now ex-wife, um, you know, I was, I just moved to London. Um, I was quite lonely. I didn't know many people down there. I was quite used to having a lot of friends around me. And um, so I think I was a little bit needy when I met her and um I started going out with her. She had a lot of friends. She was quite a buzz to be around. And I could see immediately there were problems. You know, listen, she, you know, she, you know quite early on in the relationship, probably within about a month, there, there were some quite odd episodes and like uh, where she was going to, you know, she was talking about suicide. I didn't think she was really serious about suicide, but there were these kind of half-hearted attempts where I'm kind of chasing her and, and, and you know, to, to come back because she's about to run into a road and she's saying she's going to throw herself in front of a car. And I, I wasn't sure whether she was or she wasn't. And then when I met her family for the first time, it was so turbulent. It was crazy. It was, it was. And so I knew there were problems. And I think for me, the, the, the challenge was because I didn't really have any sense of boundaries because I was a nice, caring person. I wanted to help her. I, I wanted to somehow make her better. And so I kind of got lost in that. And, and I do think that for a lot of people that fall into abuse, they're just lovely, caring people who want to help, but they don't have good, clear boundaries. And, you know, that's one of the major things I've learned coming out of abuse is how to form those boundaries and stick to them. So, so yeah, so life before my ex-wife was, was very different and, and it changed when I met her. Uh, and I became someone that was quite inward looking, um, very worried and stressed. Um, and, and as a lot of abusers do, I, I started to distance myself from my family who I'd previously been very close to because for abusers, your, 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 uh, your close family and friends, they represent a future wake up call. The abuser does not want your future wake up call hanging about. They want them gone. So more and more, I wasn't seeing my friends. I wasn't seeing my family anymore. 
and more and more I was just getting weighed down in this abuse and my whole life became uh, a sense of just trying to offset any possibility that my my partner would explode and so you, you you're planning every day you know, where could the problems arise how am I going to get around it you never stop plotting and thinking and in yourself as, as a victim of domestic abuse you yourself become quite manipulative as you're trying to almost outmaneuver your your abuser and stop those triggers from being pulled. So does that make sense? It does. It does. Can we go back a little bit further? Just what what you just covered is kind of like your later teen years to like your twenties. Yeah. But tell me, by being the people pleaser, growing up as a what we call a preacher's kid in America, yeah. in America is to all of the preachers, <laughs> to all of the pastors all over the world, your first, your first mandate is to your own house. Again, I'll lean to the Bible because it says that a man that will not provide for his house is worse than an infidel. And so I grew up in, quote-unquote, a PK-type environment. And later I was, a, you know, a preacher in that scenario and raised a family in that scenario. And this is not to throw Christianity under the bus. But this is about relationship and, and having balance in relationship. Because when you said what you said about not having clear boundaries, you you kind of turned on a light bulb for me that is really, really sinking in deeply for me on a personal level. Because I came up in an environment where there was no respect for my personal boundaries, right? And as an adult, I did set boundaries and I did establish my boundaries. Yet I still, you know, ended up in abusive relationships. Partly because I believe that I grew up in a space where my boundaries didn't exist. There, there was no respect for my boundaries. So when you come up in an environment, and when I say respect, I'm not saying that that's your case, but when, when children come up in a Christian environment that there is not a healthy balance of church, school, home life, it, it's almost as if all of this is, is one big thing. And there's no delineation between, okay, this time is allocated for school, this time is allocated for family, this time is allocated for church, this time is allocated for work, this time is allocated for outside engagement in the social community. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's like I, I basically set five different boundaries, right, and friends and all of that. But... When you're in a church environment, it's just like, well, bring your books with you. You know, you can you can do your homework in the car or 
you can do your homework, you know, when we get to church, you know, you can you can sit in the pews, you know, do your homework because everything's centered around church and your obligation to the church. And especially if you were in a position of leadership, you definitely had to defer to what was happening in the church, right? Yeah. And with that being said, Andrew, is that the person that you became as a teenager, where can you see the foundation of that coming from before you became a teenager? Can you see how you became that teenager? Yeah, I mean, I think remembering life as a preacher's kid, you know, you're very, you're very watched. You know, everyone's kind of interested in, in you and, and how you're going to behave. Um, but I think, I think really the, the, the lack of boundaries came from, you know, my, my parents are good people. Listen, I've got a great relationship with them today, and I always had a great relationship with them growing up. But they didn't foster, I, I actually think, a, a little bit of kind of rebellious attitude, a little bit of really someone having their own ideas is not necessarily a, a bad thing and I guess I probably I was so keen to please my parents not because they pushed me to please them but it's just kind of who I was you know I was quite a sensitive boy uh, as, I, as, I, as I'm told and as I, as I remember and so I, I don't think it's a particular uh, it's not particularly a reflection of, 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 of my parents parenting per se I just think I think back then, you know, you haven't, I mean, I'm 45 now, so you're going back to sort of the 1980s. Um, I, I think today in, in our schools, certainly in the UK, there's a lot more education around relationships, spotting the signs early of, of unhealthy relationships. What even does that look like? Um, of, of people trying to decide their limits for themselves and really trying to unpick what that looks like. If those conversations just didn't take place in the 80s in school. In school, you were taught what you were taught, and, and that was that. And so I do think there's we've moved on culturally from perhaps where we were 30 years ago, which is a great thing, which is a good thing. Um, but if you'd have asked me when I was 18, 1992, in 1992, therefore, if you'd have asked me, well, what are your boundaries? You know, what are your values? You know, what are the things that you would sacrifice or not? What would you say yes to and no? What would you tolerate? What would you not tolerate? I probably would have looked at you a bit puzzled and thought, what? I don't really know. And so it's trying to grow a generation of young people that could actually answer those questions quite clearly with, with some credible answers because they've thought about it. And, and for me, that, that's the key and it's something I'm hugely passionate about. In fact, in my coaching and, and leadership work that I do today, a lot of my work is around boundaries and, and because boundaries are the absolute heart of, of self-awareness, of, of self-mastery. And, and they're, they're so important, you know, if, if, whether you're someone of faith or whether you're not, you know, that your boundaries are that, that core bit of you and, 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 and they are unique. Your boundaries won't be the same as someone else's. They, 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 they communicate who you are and what you believe. Would you elaborate on that a little bit more, is that your boundaries communicate who you are? Would you elaborate on that? Well, it's just that you, they, they communicate who you are because 
if you if you believe in something, then you, you that belief will always be tested, and your boundaries will will say to some degree how whether you're prepared to flex on that belief or whether you're not prepared to flex. And if you are, well, how far would you flex? Because uh, 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 you know, boundaries are not just one thing. They're not just walls that you put around yourself to protect yourself from being taken advantage of. I mean, they are that, but they're a lot more than that, you know. And, you know, you're, you know if I'm thinking about, well, you know, if, if I invest hugely in my own business, then where... You know, that's going to take up a lot more time. So where am I going to cut time from? Would I cut it from time with my children? Would I cut it from time with my wife? No, because they they are more important to me than than my business. So but that time's got to come from somewhere. And and for me that is all wrapped up in your boundaries. You know what are the things that are truly important to you that come at the front of the queue? What are the things that come in the middle of the queue? Does it make sense that they come in the middle of the queue? given what you believe in and, and what's important to you. And so for me, all of those are questions that are wrapped up in boundaries. But if, if you don't know the answers to any of that stuff, if you've not thought that stuff through, then when you fall into an abusive relationship, then you will fall in. You, you just will get lost in it. And, and, and certainly when people typically fall into abuse, because then your whole life becomes around serving someone else, you totally lose who you are and what you believe in. Whereas if you have strong boundaries, if you're already conscious of the behavior that you will accept and the behavior that you won't accept, then when those, when the, when, when the other person starts behaving in an unacceptable way, then, then you see it early and you, you, you have, you either, you either communicate that as a warning and, or, and if it, you know, if it doesn't, if the other person's not listening, then you walk away but, you know, after, after I came out of my abusive relationship, I did some work on my boundaries. And I had a couple of girlfriends where, like, they were lovely women, don't get me wrong. But because of the work I'd done on my boundaries, I was able to see quite quickly that those relationships were not going to work out. Well, that's good news for me and for them so that we can end that relationship with, with dignity and, 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 and move on. And so for me understanding your boundaries it, it, it's great for you that you understand your boundaries you will be more successful in your relationships in your management of yourself and your health um, and your business but it's actually good news for the people around you because they know where they stand you're not this kind of vague person who just blows one way and the other way who do, doesn't seem to have a, a center and a core that doesn't seem to have preferences and ideas and so for me, it's why boundaries are so important. I'm not sure if that's answered the question, whether you feel I've elaborated on that or not, but I hope I have. This is very revelatory, your explanations, and I'm pausing in between because I'm listening to what you're saying Sure. to give me direction on the next question that I want to ask you. And let me restate, Andrew said he had a really lovely relationship with his parents. This is not about dissecting that. This is about examining him. It's it's almost as if I am wanting to have a back-to-the-past moment with you because people don't wake up just like 
when you go to elementary school, they say, what do you want to be when you grow up? No child in elementary school raises their hands up and say, I want to become an abused man or an abused woman or an abused child. That is not on your list of successful things to do in life. And the makings of that, I can trace back to what you said about your childhood is that You grew up a good boy. You grew up being raised to be respectful. You grew up raised to basically please your parents. Your desire was to please your parents, not because they were forcing that relationship, but because there was this desire to please them. Yes, Can you put your finger on why that desire was – I mean – is it that your desire to please them was an expectation, an unspoken expectation of your parents towards you? Or what was it that you felt drawn to the need to make sure that you please them? Because it, it, sounded as, it sounds typical of children who grow up in, quote, unquote, the structure of, organized, anything that's organized. So let's let's take it out of the four walls of the church. And in any place where someone in the family member is in a role of leadership, okay, be it uh, an executive of a company, be it an entrepreneur, if there is any type of structure, environment, where a child is coming from, they tend to say, okay, you know, the, the parent is saying, you know, I don't have time to do this right now. You know, mommy, daddy, we've got to do this, we've got to do that because we, you know, mommy wants to buy you nice things, daddy wants to buy you nice things, da 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 da. So we really need you to do your part. We really need you to understand, okay, buddy? Okay, okay, dear. And and it's kind of like a buy-in, is that you buy into the vision of the family. And whether that is being a pastor's kid, being an executive kid, being an entrepreneur's kid, whatever the vision is of that family, you as a child buy into that. And it's like, okay, mommy and daddy have a lot going on, and I just need to do the best that I can. So that I don't upset the apple cart. Yeah. Can you relate to that at all? Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to upset my parents. Not because you know we, we had a very peaceful house. You know, no, there was no real shouting. I, I didn't get hit. I don't remember being hit by my parents at all. You know, they, neither of my parents had a particularly quick temper. Um, is the peaceful home. I just wanted, you know, that's, I was a sensitive kid, I, I think. I did, I was a very caring boy and I enjoyed knowing that I pleased my parents. I had a good relationship with them. Um, but let me put it this way. So, I've got three boys now, uh, under seven. And um, one of my daughters uh, from my teenage marriage, uh, one of my teenage daughters who's from my former marriage, which I'm sure we'll get onto in a moment, but she is quite hard on the on my now seven year old um 
he turned seven yesterday actually uh she can be quite tough with him and, and you know we're forever trying to help her to you know when when she's asking him to do stuff just to ask him politely at least to begin with you don't need to but you know he, he's very like me our seven-year-old very sensitive guy um and it's really helped him actually i think that he's got this older sister who's can be a bit harder to handle you know uh and his brother who's four is a real you know he's a real rough tough tumbling around and bashing and but it's been really good for him he i i think there's a part he he is still the sensitive boy that he always was but i definitely think he's toughened up you know he takes he does not take any any nonsense from his older sister now his older sister's twice his size he's 15 but hey he stands up for himself he really does and because he's needed to learn to do that Whereas I think for me, my two older sisters, I was the youngest, my two older sisters were absolutely lovely. And they still are today. And so I guess I never particularly had to stand up for myself. I was never really in that situation. And I didn't really learn to. You know, I was always quite well... Well, I, I didn't need to be protected. I, I did live in... A, I had a fairly idyllic bubble. And so perhaps it could be argued that my life was... was was too stable it was too peaceful and i just then as i as i came out as a teenager you know i didn't have much adversity to face in my life growing up um and so i do sometimes think i look at my boy now he's seven and and he reminds me of me but he's definitely tougher than i was and i think actually having had siblings who are a bit rougher and tougher that's probably helped him in, in a way if that makes sense it does it does because I I honestly honestly truly honestly truly that that kind of left me at a loss and and I don't mean at a loss in a bad way because I'm dissecting what you just said and I'm following the progression of that and you are basically tying in the piece that I wanted. That I, I asked you a question and you gave me the answer. We had, you know, we got into it a little bit, and but that that was necessary for us to go that path because to get to the Andrew that entered into the abusive relationship, we now see the dynamic yeah, of that. Yeah. And, and, and there is something where people say, well, men are attracted to crazy type women or are attracted to chaotic type women. And I find that there's, there's a book in, in it. The title of it, I don't know if you've ever seen it or whatever, but the title to me is, is off-putting, so I'm not going to mention it on the show. It's off-putting. And I had heard about the book for a while, and I thought, you know, I can't get past the title. I'm like, I just cannot get past the title. <laughs> if they would say this in the title, I don't know what they're going to say inside the book, right? Yeah. And somewhere later in life, this book kept hanging in my periphery, and I decided to buy the book. I read the book, and for a little bit, I got angry about the book and what was in the book. 
And I still won't say the title because you have to be at a certain place to be able to read the book. It's not something that you can just pick up and just read and say, oh, my, you know, and keep it moving. You have to be at a certain place to be able to read that book. But you're connecting dots. You're connecting dots for people who want to understand, how did I get here? How did I get here? You know, so we're not blaming his parents, right, for giving him a stable environment. We're not blaming his parents for not having adversity in his life. We're not blaming his – because that's what, as parents, you are expected to provide for your children, is that for them to be able to be guided, to be protected, to be nurtured, to be loved. And if they fall, to pick them up and say, you know, okay, are you okay? You're okay. Make sure that they're okay. And and make sure that they get up and they try again. Your parents did that for you. Yeah, they did. Based on what you're saying, okay? Um, You had sisters who did that for you. Yeah. And because of that, you can now reflect on and say, hey, you know, I think they could have maybe not given me such a perfect life. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, do. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that if my life had not been so idyllic and so perfect and so normal and uh, void of chaos, then perhaps the choices that I made in my relationships would have been different. And that resonates. That resonates very deeply, and I hope for parents who are out there that you're listening to this. Why is it that men, good boys, are drawn to chaos? And I just kind of want to put this out there. You can take it apart if you want to, Andrew. Please feel free to do so. But I'm summarizing is that because parents who have spent the majority of their time trying to keep their children safe, and give them uh, normal boundaries and healthy boundaries and avoiding the conflict and the chaos of this world. Yeah. We feel like that's the right thing to do. But in reality, we are not of this world in the Christian faith, but we have to live in this world. And socializing and acclimating your family and your children to the reality of the world, because that bubble that you're talking about is not and was not your reality, right? Yeah. Um, As you became a teen, because it's almost like everything everything was perfect. You were in this utopian society, this utopian home, this utopian world. And then when you said, okay, now fly, (laughs) go out and be all you can be. And then you like, hmm, you know, that's not what I'm used to, but I'm attracted to that because I want to know what, you know, what's that about? I, I want you, that that need for some stimulation, some stimulation yeah. that was outside of your norm is what yeah, attracted you to yeah. those relationships. Well, or even you could argue maybe – who knows whether I was attracted to that kind of relationship, but when I started to fall into that relationship, I didn't have a clue really how to handle it other than sink further into it. And so 
like I say, I do think more work is done today in our schools with spotting the signs early. There's more awareness. Now, I didn't, I didn't imagine that I would fall into an abusive relationship because, of course, if you'd have probably asked me when I was 17, 18, I, I, would, I wouldn't have seen myself as the kind of person that would fall into an abusive relationship, which sounds quite arrogant, but, you know, and like you no. said at the very beginning of this show, you know, we, we need to, as we educate, we, we need to move away from this sense that, you know, the people that will fall into uh, abusive relationships will be of a certain class or, or a certain culture. Anyone can fall into relationships, into abusive relationships. Now that's reality. And how long they stay is, is a different thing. And this is something that people whose, whose boundaries are intact, the common, the common thing, and like I said, I have sat with people from all what I want to call all walks of life, be it homeless, um, drug-addicted, prostitutes, trafficked individuals, um, just from the low to the high. I, I like to talk to people. I like to understand their journey. I like to, to figure out, like, how did you go from making that decision to making the wrong decision that was wrong for you? Maybe it would have been right to somebody else, but it was wrong for you, right? Mm-hmm. And the difference is is that every person that I've had a conversation with have been put in a position to either break their their boundaries by accepting certain things. And, and, and I used to hear this, and I didn't quite understand this until I got older, is that you teach people how to treat you. Yeah. And that comes from having boundaries, healthy boundaries that are not movable. They're not fluid. It's like this is a deal breaker for me. And if you do this, then, you know, there's, there's no way to say, okay, well, I apologize. Uh, please forgive me. Let's move on. Yeah, you can apologize. We can move on. But there's a decision that comes to you each time to say, okay, do I continue in this relationship or is this a warning sign for me? And people who are people-pleasing tend to say, you know, I've got enough love or I've got enough compassion in my heart to let this slide. Yeah. To, I mean, to, I, you know, what can I do to help them? How can I help them? It's, it's almost like a master-servant relationship. Is that, you know, let me serve them. Let me help them through this. Yeah. I mean, I do think with boundaries, you know, I, when, when as I started recreating my boundaries coming out of abuse, you know, for me... I still wanted to be the nice, easygoing person that I think I am at heart. I just wanted to be a bit tougher than I was, but I didn't want to become a jerk at the same time. And so for me, I've got a range of boundaries. I've got boundary lines that are very fluid where I have a preference over how I would want something to be, but I'm prepared to compromise to to quite some degree. But I've also got boundaries that really are castle walls, you know, thick stone walls. They don't budge. And, and I would walk away from, you know, I would walk away. I would, I, you know, I, that is not a problem. You know, I will do that. I won't compromise on certain boundaries. But actually, a lot of my boundaries, they are flexible. They're like flexible fencing. There's a boundary line, but I can move it a little bit. Um, 
And so I think it's healthy to have a range of boundaries. So you, you've, you've got things that you, you, people can see that you would compromise on a little bit, that you've got some boundaries where you'd happily roll over. You've got a preference a certain way, but like it's not, you wouldn't lose too much sleep if you didn't get your own way. And then, of course, you've got your boundaries that you'll fight ferociously to defend. And so for me, there, there's almost three different types of boundaries, three different types of level of boundaries. But I, I you know, I'm clear in my mind what, what those are. And there's that great phrase we have here in the UK. I'm sure you have it over in the States where you pick your battles. And, you know, what, the, what are the things where I'm going to dig in and fight? Because they are my castle walls and I'll defend them. And what are the things where I'm going to say, no, do you know what? Actually, I can compromise on this bit here. I can move it a little bit. And what are those things where it's like, do you know what? I just, like, it doesn't matter. Like, just whatever. So, I, like I say, I think it's, help, it's healthy to have a range of boundaries, a suite of boundaries. You know, whether you're thinking about your intimate relationships, your relationships with your kids, or whether you're talking about your business relationships or relationships at church, it's, it's, it's that, that range of boundaries and, and truly thinking it through so you know what they are and you're used to being in touch with them. I think that's really important if you're going to master who, who you are. I've got silence at my end. Have I, am I still on the call or have we cut off? No, we're not cut off. No, that's cool. I'm Just listening. No, no we're, 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 we're still there. <laughs> yes, I am. And I go, you know, I'm following you and I'm visualizing at the same time. Yeah. And yeah, I yeah. think my biggest, my biggest thing is, is that what you said in the last 60 seconds, of your statement is worth restating if you can restate that. Because you talked about your castle walls, right? And it was like right after your castle walls. And everybody knows those are your non-negotiables. It's like, you know, you are not getting past this. This is non-negotiable. I will not tear this wall down Yeah. to let you come in. This, this is it. It's like, this is as far as you go. Turn around and go the other way. Right. Then it's those walls that are fluid that, okay, you know, I'll take the bricks down and let you pass this way. You know, either I'll let the drawbridge down and let you in. Right. But just know that the same drawbridge that I'll let down and get you in will be the same drawbridge I will lower to let you out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I I can, I can understand the castle scenario. (laughs) You know, it's like, or either take you to the tower, lock you in, or throw you off the tower. <laughs> yeah. You yeah, I mean, I think for me, yeah, for me, the movable boundaries I see as, you know, you get those at concerts, you get those, that flexible fencing where it, you, you put it in place for the concert and then you can just rip it up without too much bother. And so for me, that's more what I see flexible fencing where it's still a barrier, but it's just that the barrier can actually move a little bit. You know, uh, whereas the really, really flexible ones that, that don't matter, I see those as like a line in the sand. If you imagine a line in the sand at the beach, you, if you want to step over a line in the sand, you just step over it and the tide will wash it away the next day anyway. And so for me, the, I use those visuals to kind of help me think through where, where I actually stand on things and how much effort I want to put into defending those boundaries or not. 
Andrew, you brought back a memory of when I was a child and you would be in the neighborhood playing with the other neighborhood children here in the States. I don't know if, if this happened over there or you guys had a different version of it. But, for instance, if you were playing a game and somebody did something in the game that hurt you, right, then you want to defend your honor. And you get up and you say, you know, why did you do that, blah, blah, blah. And then they were like, you know, what you going to do about that? Okay. Then you, like, take your finger and you draw a line in the sand, like, I dare you to cross that line. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. Really, but that's like, cross this line and find out what I'm going to do about it, right? Then it's like, okay, you know, you really don't want to fight. So then you find something else and you put this stick, you put this stick on your shoulder and say, I dare you to knock this off. I dare you to knock yeah. this off, right? Because now is that they've stepped over the line, right, and they've gotten into your space. But then if they knock the stick off your shoulder, now they have gotten into your personal space. It's, it's, there's, there's different, like here now with the corona, it's like, okay, keep your distance six feet apart from each other, right? But before corona, people could be as close as like one foot from you, all right, and you not feel violated. But when someone crosses over a line and they're occupying the space that is your personal space and you're okay with that, but then they keep coming and now they're on you because in order to knock the stick off of you, they have to be basically almost touching you, right? And then it's like, okay, something inside of you says, okay, this is it. You know, I, I'm either getting ready to fight you and knock you back over the line or, you know, punish you for crossing the line or I'm going to walk away. Now, yeah. when you walk away from somebody who's crossed the line and stepped into your space, they tend to follow you and say, oh, you know, you're scared, you're afraid, you know. So they keep coming at you. They keep coming at you. So. You, they cross the line, they get in your space, and you turn and you walk away. They've knocked off the stick on your shoulder, and you turn and you walk away because you really don't want to fight with them. Yeah. And they follow you, and they keep coming at you, and then before you know it, you've turned around because you've been listening to what they're saying, and it's all worked you up on the inside. You're trying to walk away because you don't want to fight, but if you realize that, They've crossed the line. They're in your space. So every place that you go, every place that you walk is your space. Not only have they crossed the line, they've come into your space. They've violated your comfort zone. They are continuing to badger you. And now you're either going to become that person pinned into the corner because you've run out of space. Yeah. You've run out of personal space. You're either going to keep your face to the corner, are you going to turn around and start fighting? And that 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 takes me back to the the box, even to the boxing ring. You know, it's like break it up, every man in a corner. When you're ready, come out fighting, right? Yeah. But when yeah. you don't have a boxing ring and you don't have a referee to navigate that fight and It's you and them, and you're backed into this corner, and you turn around and you start to fight. Depending on how intense the belittlement has been, the response to that could be very detrimental. 
Or yeah. it could be, I'm just going to stand here and let you continue to berate and belittle me until you run out of gas. And then you'll leave my space. I'll close the door behind you and try to collect myself yeah. so that I can come out and deal with you on another level again. Because it's not going to go away. It's either they, they ran out of steam, they got tired, or they're going to say, okay, you know, I see how far I can push them now. So I know that I can take them to that place again, and they won't do anything. So they're going to continue to do that. And in moving, in moving the boundaries, and in, in moving the boundaries, right? In moving the boundaries, you talked about flexible material, and and I can relate to that as well because I've seen that fencing that you're talking about that's flexible enough that you. If you're setting up an event, you can just pick it up and move it wherever you want to. And then you've got that other metal wall, the bars kind of thing that you can also pick up, but they're harder to move. And then you've got yeah. the fixed structure that you cannot move without destroying the whole setup. Yeah. Okay. So now when you say it's not inconvenient for me to take the flexible wall and move it to let us negotiate how we're going to move forward in this. So I'll do that. I'm willing to do that. But the one that's a little bit heavier, it's going to take a little bit more effort for me to move that out of position and put it back in position should we not be able to reach a conclusion on this. I'm not going to be so quick to move that. But the one that will tear everything down, that's not going anywhere. But if you don't have that one, that there's there's another passage in the Bible about uh, a fool being like um, a city without, I think it's windows or without walls. And you can't have an existence if you have no boundaries. There's, yeah. there's no room for self-existence if you have no boundaries because the person who is trying to navigate your life and control and manipulate your life will come in and establish boundaries based on their needs, not on your needs or the family unit's needs, but based on their needs to control and govern the situation because the longer they can control you, then the longer that they can put in motion their plan to tear down because a foolish woman will build her house, I mean, will destroy her house, and a wise one will build her house. And the same with a foolish man and a wise man. But now that we've looked at Andrew, the child, we've looked at Andrew, the teenager, and we've looked at Andrew, the dater, right? So you're, you're dating your ex-wife. Yeah. Okay, now that we've talked about who you were before then and how you ended up here, dating her, pursuing her when she said, you know, I'm going to commit suicide. I'm going to throw myself off a bridge, da, 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 whatever. Uh, meeting the family was chaotic. All the warning signs were there. Warning, warning. I don't know if you ever saw this. I think it was Lost in Space. Warning, warning, Will Robertson. <laughs> danger, danger. This robot would spin and turn and, and, and light up and everything and would, would tell this young boy, you know, warning, 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 warning. And he would turn and he would look 
to see where the danger was coming from and then either decide, oh, this isn't danger. I can deal with this or I better go get my dad or I better go get one of the other leaders to come and deal with this, right? But the robot was always the warning sign saying, you know, okay, don't go forward until you've examined the situation. And all the warning signs were there for you. But the pleasing side of you, the good guy side of you, the compassionate side of you says, you know what? I want to do this, this, and this, and this. What did that guy say to himself when he met the family, said to her, you know, don't commit suicide? What what was that guy thinking when all of this was bombarding him? Uh, At the the beginning, it felt like a bit of a blur. But listen, this is what people do when they're caught in abuse. And there's a whole thing... Uh, there's a bit of a, a buzzword over here. I'm sure you've got it in the States called gaslighting, where you, the person abusing you, they play with your mind to the point where you just start to doubt your own sanity. And, and you, you then, you know, you blame yourself for, for their behavior entirely. And so, you know, I, so... I was caught up in this blur, but increasingly I thought it was my fault. You know, I was told it was my fault. I was told that I was provoking her, the violent outbursts when I was being attacked. Um, so it's like punching, kicking, scratching was the usual stuff, biting. You know, the, the, the argument being it was always my behavior that provoked this response. I was being an idiot. I was being this. I'd forgotten that. And so I just thought, you know, if, if I was a better man, a stronger man, then this wouldn't keep happening. And so I started to turn myself inside out to try and somehow become this, this better man that didn't deserve the abuse. And of course, you know, I mean, I went to counseling, I read loads of self-help books and, you know, I, I never found the answer to how to become that, that better man. But the, the problem for a lot of people caught in abuse is they either don't recognize it as abuse um, or they, or and they, they blame themselves for it anyway. They feel like they're just an, an idiot, a jerk, and they deserve it. And so then this this real sad situation, you know, continues, and then your confidence plummets anyway. And so you know, I remember. Listen, I remember one morning. This is going to sound a little crazy, but we were living in the south of France. We moved to France, and. Um, my wife had a, uh, my now ex-wife, but my, my wife had a riding lesson. And you know, the stables were about 15 minutes away. And we had a lot of money at the time. And um, she, she needed to be woken up. She needed to really be up, you know, by late morning. And I remember doing as a, as a dutiful husband, you know, I took her a cup of tea halfway through the morning, took her a bit of breakfast, you know, you need to start waking up now. You've got your riding lesson. But she wouldn't get out of bed. She often didn't. And so... You know, I carried on with, with my daughters downstairs. We were doing bits and pieces. Anyway, I then go upstairs, and she's now on the phone to her mates, uh, one of her mates in England, and the phone call goes on and on and on. And I kind of gesture at the door, you know, pointing to my watch, you know, honey, it's, it's, like, it's your writing lesson time. Anyway, she, she's ages on the phone. Then she gets out of bed in a right grump because she's going to be late, and she blames me for not having got her up. And I honestly thought it was my fault. I felt so guilty if only I'd have got her out of bed and, 
you know, he's ridiculous. You know, I, I, it, it, the whole thing's ridiculous now looking back. But at the time when you're courting it, you know, I honestly thought it was my fault that she was late for her riding lesson. And, you know, I'm not an idiot. I've been to university. I've got common sense. But, but that's what happens in abusive relationships. You know, you, you kind of lose yourself. You lose your mind. You, you, you just don't think rationally anymore. And then you get stuck in it. And then it's all your fault. So you're not looking to escape particularly because you're, you're looking to make yourself a better person. So the abuse stops. That's, that's what you want. And so there's, there's mentally for, for men and women, you just, you know, to, to say, well, if it's that bad, why don't you leave? It's really complicated for women and men. And um, it's hard to, to leave. Uh, when, when you've got no confidence and of course when you've become isolated which you know abusers do try and gradually uh, manipulate your relationships with close family and friends and then of course for men as well if you're thinking even if you've got to a point where you're like actually I need to get out of this if you've got kids with your wife uh, and, she, and your wife is the abuser is your abuser then you, you've got a real problem because you you have to leave your kids in the hands of an abusive person. He's going to walk away and do that. You know, a good father wouldn't do that. A good father would lay down his life. Um, you, you worry if, if I leave, you know, am I going to even see my children again? You know, I mean, things have got better here in the UK in the family courts that, uh, but, but it, it's still, you know, questionable. If, if you've got someone who's hugely manipulative and they've got money behind them to afford good legal representation, that can be a problem. And so there are all these little things that keep men and women trapped in abusive relationships, uh, not knowing really how to take a step forward. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's really difficult. You know, I think um, to something else that you had said previously, and tying it into that moment in space where there you were doing what you thought was the expected thing for you to do. Something as simple as, wake up, honey, you're going to be like turned into something. So versus getting up when you first asked her to get up, you're going to be late. She picks up the phone and she gets on the phone and she starts talking to someone else and this someone else is making her late but it's now your fault that she's late that she's been on the phone with this uh, with this other person and clearly the objective never was really to make it to the writing lesson on time it was just how can I wake up and find a way to mess up the day yeah, and yeah. this is something that I have found is that people who are like that are they they live, eat, sleep, and breathe the idea and the concept of creating a script, a scenario. It's like they they go to sleep with on their mind. They wake up in the morning and then they activate. And yeah. the only time that you really have any time to really, really, really kind of settle down is during the night 
but then there are people who will experience being awakened in the middle of the night from a, a sleep that was hard to come by, only yeah. to create drama and chaos in the middle of the night. So that yeah. throws your sleep cycle off. No, and totally. then, yeah. yes, go ahead. No, I can relate to that. My, my ex-wife would always try and start, you know, very contentious conversations very late at night. And I'd always be trying not to get drawn into a conversation where she's asking for my opinion on something and it's a lose-lose situation. And I'm desperately trying to avoid the conversation because it's like midnight. And, of course, she knows what she's doing. And then, and then you're up till two o'clock in the morning managing her going crazy and um yeah it's it's a way that that sleep deprivation it's horrendous and you you know it's going on but and you're trying to wind things down so everyone can just everyone could just go to bed and go to sleep it's really stressful you know what's it was so bad that when i was at work i was working in london uh, it was earlier on in our relationship and she did this and uh i was i was on the phone to a client I was working for a recruitment firm, a firm of headhunters in London, and I was—I actually fell asleep on the phone to one of my clients, and my boss sort of was like, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "I was literally asleep on the phone." And the client on the other end of the phone was going, oh, "Hello, hello, hello," and I—I and I, I was asleep because I was so exhausted by being up all the time with with my um, ex-wife, you know, trying to manage her, and she would always kick off late at night and. I've met other guys who, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure it happens both ways for, for women and men, but so there's some other guys because I um, do help uh, male survivors of domestic abuse. And it's quite common where, where you know, guys are just attacked and they're, they're asleep. And then through the morning, suddenly they wake up to being beaten up by their partner. And, you know, that, that's just, you know, that, that's what happens. It's crazy. The tactics that are used is relevant to, quote-unquote, the chaos theory. And if you can keep someone constantly spiraling, second-guessing themselves, and just trying to hold on to that little stream of hope, I mean, because it starts out as this big rope, and it gets unraveled, and all you are holding on to is just like a small, narrow fiber of that rope because the rest of it has come unraveled. Yeah. And it has either like been just totally shredded, and you're holding on for dear life. And the best scenario that I can say is that when someone is in the middle of the ocean, right, and the boat capsizes with you, your children, your ex, you know, your wife. I'm going to put it in a scenario like this. Your wife or your husband, it's you, your spouse, and your children, and you're in a boat and it capsizes, right? As a man, you're probably going to try to save the spouse, and your children, right? Yeah. But your first reaction is is that if the spouse is now standing and they're fine, but they see you struggling to save the children and they aren't trying to help you save the children, 
but the spouse is still in the water and they're fine, but you're struggling to save the children, but the spouse isn't trying to help you save the children. And it's dark, and you're out on the ocean, and it's dark, and the boat is capsized. And you're struggling to save the children, and you manage to get to the boat, and you're looking over at your spouse, and your spouse still is okay, and they're not trying to help you get the boat or save the children. And you get to the boat, and you get the children in the boat, and you're outside of the boat, and you're trying to save the spouse, but the, to save the spouse would put you and the children back in danger. Yeah. And the spouse is standing there watching you and hoping that you'll re-enter the space of danger. They aren't trying to come to you now that you've gotten the boat and the children to safety. They're wanting you to either leave the children and come to them, right, to rescue them, which is a possibility that you won't make it back, and then the children will become endangered and flip over. So that's the scene. That's the scene for me that Hmm. this paint basically is, is that you have to choose between yourself, the spouse, and the children, and the boat represents that place of safety. Are, are you following what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So when did you reach that point in the scenario that I'm talking about is that when you realized that she wasn't interested in your best well-being or the children's well-being or being safe well, as a family. I, I had a wake-up call, listen, so, um, and I refer to this in my TEDx talk uh, where uh, it's how I start my TEDx talk with the story, uh, you know, my, my neighbor walked in on my wife attacking me and uh, she walked into the house because we were living in France and we, everyone would just walk into each other's houses, you know, that's how it was. Um, and she, she broke up and she managed to persuade my wife to go next door with her and calm down. And then that neighbor said to me later that evening, Andrew, you do realize, he was very well spoken, you do realize, Andrew, you, this is domestic abuse. And I remember thinking, really? I meant to, is it? And it was a wake-up call. I didn't leave at that point. Um, but from that point onwards, I did, it was a bit of a shock, and I did start to reflect on what was going on here, on the lose-lose situations that my ex-wife would create. On, and I really started to reflect a lot more. And I think that was the beginning of the end. And um, we, the relationship then broke up for a few reasons the following year. But that wake-up call from my neighbor started a train of thought. It started me reflecting. It, started, it was the first person that actually basically said, Andrew, this isn't all your fault here. This, there's some unreasonable behavior going on here. Because I always thought it was me that was being unreasonable, which is why she was you know, so, so difficult to, to be with. It was all my fault. And so that, that, that's what started it. You know, and, um, When the relationship then broke up, it... I, I then I, I lived down the road for for a while in, in France in in another property and um, 
I started, you know, it was such a relief. At first, I did all that I could to, to get back with my ex-wife and we went to marriage guidance, but she didn't seem particularly interested in getting back together with me. And after, after a few months, I was like, well, I'm not that interested. And then as I started to clearly distance myself and just not be particularly interested in her, of course, that changed. She then came back begging, wanting me back. And, and at that point, I, I had a lot of pressure from people uh, from my past who are Christians who who know me well, and they, they were like, you've got to go back, you've got to try and make this work. And, you know, and uh, you know, they were from, from an old church, and I was like, nah, I ain't going back. Get it. It's done. You know, I knew I was done. And, uh, you know, I, I had a bit of a battle in terms of, like, the children. So when I dropped the children back to her, having had them for a weekend, she'd literally get on her knees in the doorway in front of our daughters who would then be starting to cry and you know, begging me to choose her and choose the family she deliberately create these incredibly emotional scenes and but i just the more she did that the more i just thought you, you can't manipulate any, me anymore you, you are just ridiculous and utterly manipulative and as tough as this is you know i'm gonna have to find a better way to drop them our daughters back to you because they can't this is this is awful for them but you're just proving to me why I'm not coming back to you. You're just showing me that that's the right decision. And so, so yeah, it started with a wake-up call. And then I just thought and reflected more and more. Um, and, you know, uh, I got... Uh, once I wasn't in that relationship anymore, I became stronger very quickly. Um, uh, the, the, my weakness with my daughters, and, and that was a real... That that really was that killed me. That did that was really hard. Living apart from my daughters and getting used to seeing them every other weekend, rather than being there, you know, being there day to day for them. Um, but you know, we, we got through it, and um, yeah, we got through it. That's all I can say. It's not easy. And I often say to people, you know, it, people in abusive situations, listen, that the grass is greener on the other side of the hill. You know, we have that cliche here about, you know, is, is the grass green or isn't it? It absolutely is. But often to get to that green grass, you've got to crawl through the mud first and you've got to crawl on your hands and knees and it won't be easy. But you do get to the green grass eventually. You keep crawling and you keep moving forward. And, you know, the question is, are you prepared to crawl through the slime and the mud first or are you going to stay where you are and not get to the green pastures because the mud and the slime are, are just too difficult. And, you know, each person has their own journey. Each person has different challenges. But I, I just essentially got my head down and started crawling forwards. And, uh, yeah, that's how, 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 I, how I got out of it, I guess. I, I listened to your, your TED Talk. And how you ended up in the court system with the children and the outcome of that. I really would like for you to talk about that. And, you know, we've had people in the chat room and we've had people um, call in. And um, I am not ignoring the callers or the chat room, but this is really something that needs to continue in the path that it's going. This is July 4th and in the state that represents Independence Day. And I yeah. find it interesting that 
this is Independence Day from our cousins across the water. <laughs> but we're <laughs> but we're connecting, so I thought it was very appropriate for us to have yeah, this yeah. interview today because it's not about that. It's about talking to men and talking to women and saying this is Independence Day and you should make it your day of independence. Not wanting you to take any drastic measures to harm yourself or to harm anybody else. But the scenario that I painted of if someone is in the chaos with you and they have no interest in the chaos normalizing and being over, and it's you and your children, and the choice to be made is choosing yourself and your children over the dark ocean that is chilly, that is cold, that is trauma-inducing, it's fear-inducing, it is not healthy for you to be exposed. Um, What is that? Uh, Hypothermia, all of that. If you think of all the scenarios that could happen to you, the longer that you stay in that environment, all the things that could happen to you. And you have to make a choice is that you get in the boat and you get your children to safety, right? Yeah. Because if, if, if the other person is not interested in your safety or the safety of the children, then you have to be able to make that decision for yourself and do what is best for the children and yourself, right? Because the children are not able to make that decision. The children have a sense of this is not normal. This, I mean, children are instinctively aware. They absolutely when, when, are. Yes. You know, when there is no love, uh, when there is something that's not right, they don't even have to be exposed to anything other than what's going on in your home, your personal home, because children don't get to go to other people's houses at, you know, a young age like that but they know something's not right, and they're waiting for somebody to make it right. They're looking to the, the person who is the non-toxic parent to make it right. But the longer you stay in that environment of toxicity, it tends to make you become toxic. And I I used to, what is that? There is a saying here in the States about uh, one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you have that? Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And as a kid, I used to not get that. But once you grow up and you start buying your own fruit. (laughs) Yeah. And, and you all these all these little things that were said to you, it's like that is true. You know, one yeah. thing can spoil everything. And you have to decide, do I take that spoil thing out and everything that is contaminated out so that I can save the rest, or do I just throw it all away? Yeah. And if you are a parent with children, young children, throwing the whole thing away, means that you would have to throw yourself away, throw the children away, throw the spouse away, throw everything away, your life, 
as you know it, uh, your job, everything. And to me, that is where people say, okay, um, the only way out of this is for me to end it for all of us. Yeah. Say that again. No, I was just listening, and yeah, I, I think, yeah, I'm just kind of going along with you, yeah. Uh, And so I want to say to them at this point, Andrew, is that if you are contemplating suicide, suicide is not the answer. And if you are, I want to give you the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It is 1-800-273-8255. If you are in an emergency right now, call 911 here in the States. Andrew, um, what emergency number is there in the U.K.? Well, we have 999, but I would just add, you know, anybody who is, who feels suicidal because because of this, the relationship that they're in, you know, my, my encouragement, I went through some really dark times, you know, and, and when I wasn't seeing my daughters, when my ex-wife blocked my contacts, you know, I felt really low. I didn't feel suicidal, to be fair, but I was in a bad way. But, you know, years later, you know, I'm blissfully married. You know, I've got three more beautiful boys who are exhausting and wonderful in equal measure. But, you know, anybody can rebuild. And sometimes when we're in our really low moments, it feels like it's not possible for me to rebuild. You know, other people can maybe rebuild, but I can't. It's gone too far. But it's never gone too far for anybody. You, you, you can rebuild. It will take time, but you can rebuild and, you know, like I say, listen, I am blissfully remarried. I've met a fantastic woman. And the thing that I've realized is for all the horrible men and women out there or, or broken men and women who, are, who destroy other men and women, there are in equal numbers fantastic men and women out there. And, you know, I, I just, anybody who feels like they've reached their end point, you know, do, do come through this because it is so worth it when you come out the other side and you will come out the other side. That, that's, the, that, that's the truth. Now, we are very deeply into the show. I, I don't want to make this mandatory anything, but after you came out of this, have you had any time of reflection with your older children who are a product of your first marriage? And have they shared anything with you about how they were feeling and um, their response to you leaving the relationship and getting them out? Yeah, I mean, my, my eldest in particular was six when the relationship broke up. Um, and and really, you know, they they really struggled being with their mum, and 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 re- it was several years later they got moved by the courts. They they weren't doing well at all, and they, they were badly bullied. My my ex-wife had completely blocked my contact completely. I hadn't seen them for months, and so that that, that was tough for them. And and they, they talk about you know when they were with their mum, although there were happy times, they were always fearing where the next you know, explosion was going to come from. Life felt very, very uncertain. Um, and, and that has affected them. You know, they, they both had counselling as, as teenagers. They, um, when they were moved by the courts, you know, you might think, well, great, they've been moved by the courts out of chaos into stability. But it's really hard for kids who've been used to chaos to suddenly live in stability. 
and you know that was a difficult change for them and you know sometimes I look, I look back on it and I think you know what well, you always think well, did I make the best decision I think I probably made the best decision that I could but yeah so I do talk to them um, they, they weren't physically my, my wife was uh, my ex-wife was not violent towards them physically she was very emotionally manipulative but she wasn't she was only violent towards my eldest on one occasion where she did attack her quite badly um but you know which was obviously really bad i'm not saying it's not but i'm saying she my my ex-wife wasn't repeatedly violent towards them there, there are plenty of kids in the uk who are getting beaten every day that that wasn't their reality but they lived with someone who was very unpredictable, very, very unpredictable. So your oldest daughter was six at the time, and how old was the uh, the second daughter? The youngest, was, the youngest was three when it broke up. So she doesn't remember a lot about the actual breakup. Um, but they remember years. Then they lived with my ex-wife till they were 11 and 8. So obviously they have memories of, of living with her, the, the memories of when she totally cut contact and I didn't see them for many months um, as well. They, they remember that. And of course, when, when they were 11 and 8 and they were moved, they, they remember that. And that was a big culture shock for them because on the one hand, they were relieved to, they themselves would say they were relieved to live in a stable home. But in a stable home, there's homework, there's bits of housework to be done, there's the, the absence of chaos when you're used to chaos is actually quite hard as a kid. And so we have talked about that, you know, and um, yeah, it's not been an easy journey for them, but you know, and, and, and it's, it's hard for children where, you know, and I guess in the States from what I pick up on social media, you know, it's really hard in the family courts. Family courts are not an ideal place to settle your differences and, and you've got this dilemma of you get situations where loving parents are squeezed out of the children's life by uh, a manipulative parent, but you also get situations where manipulative non-resident parents, you know, they, they wave the domestic abuse card and they, they try and, you know, force contact and, and actually they're the abusive person. And, you know, it, it's really hard. The family courts don't get much time to look at each case. I imagine that's the same in the States as it is in the UK. And they're very confrontational places. They're not a good place to settle child contact issues. And so there's a lot of pain in the family courts. And, you know, in terms of, you mentioned suicide, you know, that there is quite a link we see in the UK between parental alienation, where you don't get to see your kids, and, and men that then, it's usually the men, not always, that then go on and, and commit suicide. And so it's a big problem, you know, the, 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 the uh, and, anybody that's breaking up from an abusive relationship if there are children involved it, it does make it more complicated it just does you know you, you can't just cease contact with this abusive person you just go your separate ways in the same way that you could if, if there were no kids right and in this but in this scenario is that if you would have been able to have your children out of that situation sooner. Just, just the hindsight. I mean, looking back, the you, you left when the oldest was three. You had your wake up call, right? And for those men and women who are out there now, is 
the alternative to leave and not take the children because if you if you could have left and left with the children, what would, I would have, have looked like? I absolutely would have done. If I could have left and taken the kids, I absolutely would have done. But the problem that uh, it's changing a little bit now in the UK, but I felt that if I left with the kids, um, you see, my, my ex-wife is middle class. She's very articulate. She knows how to play the system. I felt that, you know, I, I hadn't reported the domestic abuse. I, I generally considered it was all my fault. So, and, and then as the relationship broke up, you, I wanted to make the situation as peaceful as possible. So I could have taken the kids, but she'd have probably had the police. She'd have had all kinds of allegations made. And I felt that if I took the kids, it would be seen very much as an act of absolute war. And, and, and I wanted to try and make, I wanted just, I wanted everything to be peaceful, if it's all possible. And so I didn't take the kids. Do I regret that now, knowing what I now know? Well, I don't really know. What, what I do know is had I left with the kids, I think there would have been an absolute chaos that would have ensued. And I think... As a man, I greatly feared false allegations. And, and frankly, they were made anyway, even though I didn't take the kids and even though I financially was very generous to her, uh, more so than, than my legal entitlement you know, obligations, I always gave her more than I had to financially uh, as a point of principle. Um, but the allegations still came of this and that. And, and it would have been even worse had I tried to leave with the kids and had I tried to leave with the kids and not successfully kept them, then that would have been really, I think it would have been quite very, very difficult. And I, I didn't want to get caught in a family court battle that would cost thousands of pounds, that would last months, even years. And uh, I mean, in the end, I did get caught in the family court anyway. But So no, I think in hindsight, I don't regret leaving without them. I think as a man, it would have been very difficult for me to have left with them and kept them. Um, and then, like I say, in the family courts, it's a bit of a lottery over here. It depends who you get. It depends on the judge. depends on the CAFCAS worker. So we have an organization called CAFCAS. They're an independent body who advise the judges basically on what to do. But the, the quality of those CAFCAS officers is very hit and miss. Some of, the very, some of them are very insightful and very balanced. Some of them are incompetent and out of their depth. And some of them are very prejudiced. You, you just don't know who you'll get. And so it's a big gamble for a man to leave a relationship and take the kids with him, particularly where there's nothing on record, no reports of domestic abuse. So I think I made the right decision to leave without them. Um, and at the end of the day, you could only do the best that you can at the time with the information that you have. So, so no, I have no regrets. Okay. So now to talk to someone else who is, in that situation, facing that situation, is that you You basically said is that you never reported the abuse, right? Yeah. And that was a deterrent to you being able to build your case for leaving with the children. Yes. So I'm, for people who are in the situation right now, is reporting the situation is important. Yeah, and I think so. More more men are underreporting, and I say more men are underreporting because I grew up in a very violent environment. I was 
at a at a young age my my mom as I knew it was murdered when I was six. So I was basically sent off to another group of people that I didn't know anything about who later took me to family court. So I was in and out of family court until I was like 13 um, with different people trying to, you know, get custody and things like that. So, But I, I say that because during the time frame, I, I went from what I considered someone, having someone who loved me to someone who didn't show me the love that I had received from the mom who was murdered, right? And so I had to go from the trauma of losing my murdered mom, not as a result of domestic yeah. violence, but she was she was murdered at the hands. We had a business, and um, this person wanted credit, and she wouldn't give them credit, so, you know, therefore they killed her. And I didn't understand why they killed her until I was an adult because nobody talked about it. So what, what I'm saying is I'm speaking as a child, someone who has been a child in volatile situations like that, that when I would look to the men, and when I say the men because I ended up rolling from 6 to 16 in one set scenario and then from 16 to 18 in another scenario, of people that I had to adapt to, right? But during the time from 6 to 16, it was filled with trauma and chaos and abuse to myself and to the man in the house, right? That was, quote, unquote, the father figure. And I would always look at him as if, aren't you going to do something about this? and, And then finally one day he tried to come to my rescue, and it went way bad. It went way bad. And, and all I'm saying is, is that for me in hindsight, in hindsight, um, if he'd had the wherewithal or the capacity to take me out of that environment or either go to the courts and say, hey, you know, we're not the right place for her. She needs to be placed somewhere else. Having, having an adult stand up for you, is critical in yeah. the eyes of a child. Okay, it is very critical in the eyes of a child. And when someone else is harming you and you look to, especially if you are the father in that situation, because I believe that as I grew up and I, I became a, a teen, an adult, that for some reason or another, you would think that I would have become an abusive female, that I would have been the abuser, but I was not. I ended up being abused. And that I found very interesting is that I did not do or become the the women. Now, these were people who were pillars in the community, pillars in the church, pillar in uh, local government, and they were well-respected outside of the four walls of the house, but inside of the house, it was held constantly, constant chaos, constant, constant chaos. And coming out of that, not knowing that I had a father who loved me and who showed me love, you know, never, never really, it's not a matter of telling me love, but showing me that you love me, showing, you know, showing the love that you love me enough to get me to save me or to stand up for me or to protect me 
or to guide me uh, so that I won't be harmed versus he would just sit and watch, right? He would just sit and watch, just sit and watch. And because the alternative was that I guess in his mind, if I engage, then it's going to just be worse, right? But not having that person and, and that male figure in that male role model to demonstrate, okay, you know, I'm going to still stand up for you, even though I know it's going to get worse. At least I would have said, you know, he tried. He, you, you know what I'm talking about? It's like in the mind of a child, you're all they have if you're the non-toxic parent. You're all they have. And if you are being abused, physically, mentally, emotionally, sexually, financially, all of that, don't make threats. And and I learned as I was in violent uh, relationships as a result of all of this, and I didn't make that connection until I was able to get away from being in violent relationships. Yeah. That um, being able to say to a child is that you know I love you, but being able to to show a child that you love them. It's not in the things you give them. It's in what you do. It's in what you do. Because they're looking for you to do something on their behalf. And here is where you find out who's for you and who's against you. And I know that that sounds really strange, but I can remember as a child, having a situation where a neighborhood boy was harming me. And I probably was like four or something. A neighborhood boy was harming me. And a family member, this is before my mom got murdered, uh, came to my rescue. I idolized that relative, right? And and I remember... They had they were tumbling on the ground. They were teenagers. There was a teenage boy in the neighborhood, and he basically was sexually, uh, you know, violating me. And I screamed. The family member came to the rescue and had him on the ground, was pummeling him, pummeling him. And I reached and I picked up this rock, and I said, hit him, hit him, <laughs> hit him with this, hit him with this. I wanted somewhere inside of me was like, you cared enough to stand up for me. He could have... He could have beat you up, but you cared enough to stand up. So I, I always gave that person a pass in life. They weren't the best person overall, but it was the mere fact that they stood up for me yeah. and came to my defense. As a little child, four years old, I'm and, and younger, I'm looking for somebody to stand up for me and, and my defense. And the one thing that I found was, you know, in faith. Um, at, at an early age, the the sense of something greater than myself. I can't explain that other than the fact that there was always this presence that I felt, that there was something greater, something bigger outside of myself that was involved in my life. And to a man or to a woman who are currently in a situation like this. If you have been documenting the abuse, be it whatever type of abuse it is, if you have documentation of that abuse, that's part of your 
way out. If you have not reported, start reporting. Start following through on your threats. Don't say, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, but you never follow through on it. Well, then, like, you know, you're, you're just blowing smoke and they know it. But if you follow through, I'm not saying, saying that, you know what, I went and I filed on you today or I did this today. You don't have to tell them what you're doing. Just do it. Just just do it and begin yeah. doing it. And that way, so when you do have everything that you need to begin to break free from this, that you have evidence, you have people you, you've built a, a group of people around you who are there for you. And sometimes the people, I interviewed uh, a professor who was a former lawyer and judge on the show, um, and he talked about how she was one way with their friends and another way at home. And then once he left that relationship, the friends turned on him but at her command basically right and they took her side because they never saw the abuse publicly they never witnessed the abuse publicly so all the things that he was saying the reason why he left it was like you know guys seriously you need to go back you need to make this work and that's the issue is that there's no place where a man can go and talk to another man and be believed without being made to feel weak. You can't talk to, I've talked to so many different people from many different walks of life, and they say, well, you know, relationships are just hard like that. You just have to work through those things, you know. Um, You you have to uh, man up, you you know. You have to do this and you have to do that, you know. It's not going to be easy. It's like nowhere in the history of creation, was it meant to be that way? Yeah, I, I do think where, for me. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I do, you know where? Yeah, where? yeah. and I, I do think for me some of the Christian thing of you know trying to work at my marriage. I, you know, you got to work at your marriage. You know, it's not always easy. You know, um, but actually, yeah, I'm married now. It's easy. Let me tell you. I, I you know, I, I know for some, I know some people have happy marriages that they need to really work at. And, and I do, of course, I, in effort, but it just kind of flows really well. And, you know, it it was so hard being married. It was impossible being married to my ex-wife. It, 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 it destroyed me. And I think if you're in a church situation, obviously a lot of abusers, they're public-based. You know, no one would ever guess. And so... You are going to face that. What are you doing? You know, you need to give them another chance. But if you know in your heart that you've done that, that that person isn't going to change, that the dynamic is abusive, then you are within your rights to walk away and and find happiness. And, you know, I, like I say, I, I have a lovely relationship with my wife. I'm blessed. I'm in a great place uh, emotionally. Uh, I'm still uh, got a strong faith um, that that you know that hasn't changed. It's got better, um, and so I just would encourage people not to. I think particularly in a church situation, you can be encouraged to stay in relationships that are not healthy because you're just expected to work at it. And of course, you should work at your relationships. But if they're abusive, then then 
you know, nobody really should expect you to stay in them. And, and I, I think the church sometimes has a lot to answer for. Oh, Andrew, you said it. I was thinking it, but you said it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are one. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for saying that because I was thinking it. It's like, you know, I've said it before, and but to hear you say it, yes. And, and I think that if we were truly following the Bible, we wouldn't tell people that. Because yeah. the, the Bible is there, and it exists in the Bible, and it tells you how a husband is supposed to treat his wife and how a wife is supposed to treat her husband and how a mother is supposed to treat her children, how a father is supposed to treat her, his children, right? It's there. We just don't look at it and we go by what it looks like how things should look and there is going to come a reckoning of this that the church has counseled people to stay in abusive relationships when it was not required of them to stay in those relationships the church has counseled people to stay in relationships that they know were very toxic okay because you wanted to save face or you wanted to put up a good front or you wanted it to look good, especially people who are in leadership. You know, it's like if you're having trouble in your relationship and you're in leadership, they're going to fight tooth and nail for you to make that thing work. And it does not matter because at the end of the day, if you stood up and you gave your marriage vows and it says, well, God puts together, let no man put asunder, if that's in your vow, and you know full well God didn't put you together. Seriously? I'm like, come on. Yeah. Um, there, there's just, there's a lot that the church has to answer for. And I think that right now it's the children because I've talked to children who want nothing to do with the church, want nothing to do with church, want nothing to do with religion, want nothing to do with God based on what they went through as preachers' kids, as what they went through um, being in the church and watching either their mom or their father be mishandled. Therefore, there was there was a situation where, um, you know, a family was excommunicated out of a church and they were excommunicated out by the police department and there was no violence. And the children, the children watched as, you know, their parents, was being dragged out by the police department. They weren't yeah. doing anything. You, you don't think so. There's a lot that has to be answered for. But in the meantime, right now, if you are a father or a mother in an abusive relationship, start documenting, start telling, start telling, start speaking up, start talking. Start. It's, it's kind of like you need to lay, have a box of bricks and start putting the bricks down, follow the yellow brick road. You need to start building your road out of the situation. And that means speaking up. So men, it's time for you to speak up. My situation where I grew up as from the age of 6 to 16 on from there to 18 to 19 to 2021, basically until I was out on my own, I experienced abuse of men, 
of, of children, physically, mentally, emotionally, sexually, financially, every level that you can possibly think of. And when I was six has been a while back. Mm-hmm. And I found out that Abraham Lincoln was abused by Mary Lincoln. Okay. So I, I'm like, if it was happening in the White House and it was happening before the White House and men have suffered in silence and not spoken up, that's why my position is what it is. You cannot come to me and tell me that it doesn't happen to men because I've lived it, living it. I see and I've seen it. So you can't come at me and tell me this does not happen. I am not going to accept that you want to continue in this path and this pattern because the next generation, it takes 40 years to build a generation. The next 40 years of the U.S. and the United Kingdom as a nation is dependent upon how we go forward. Can I continue to make this a female issue? This is a human issue. Yeah. I am not on a tirade or anything, but another human being should never be allowed to mishandle another human being and not be held to account for that. Yeah. It should not happen. It shouldn't matter whether it's a man or a woman. But in order for me to take the position that I'm taking, I'm taking it based on my life. I have women on this show that I have interviewed, so I am not biased in any way, but I am pro-human. I am pro-human, and this has to stop. Because and also, I absolutely agree. And also, I'm just conscious of the time. I might need to wrap up in a moment. Yes, but, yes, you know, yes, yes. A very good friend of mine is a single mum. She's been beaten up over time by her two teenage daughters. And so we hmm. have to remember... You know, this is an increasing problem in the UK, is a child or teenager on parent abuse. This is another face of domestic abuse. We have to create a narrative where she doesn't feel like a rubbish mum in speaking out because there are other parents saying, hey, listen, this happens to me too. And so that's why I'm keen to just move the narrative a little bit. Domestic abuse involves women and men as abusers and victims. And there are different faces. We've yeah. got the LGBT community. We've got parents yes. abused by teens. It's all domestic abuse. And we have to yes. take a, a firm stand against all abuse and, and try to understand, you know, in our education of it, in the media, at school, in politics, that let's try and include all these faces. Let's give them coverage. Let's, let's try and get people to speak out so we can understand more about it, how we spot it, how, how we protect against it. And, and, I mean, I think, you know, the, the teenage thing is it's probably always been there but it's probably got worse with the whole uh, entitlement culture that, that we have today yes. um, and, and more single parent families. Obviously, whether that single parent is a mum or a dad, the fact that you're a single parent, you, there's not two of you, there's one of you. And, and I, I guess it's probably easier to, to be ganged up on, you know, whether you're a man or a woman. And that is my intent. And that's why I say pro-human. Yeah. Because it is yeah. happening a human being. Absolutely. And if you yeah. are a human being in a situation like this, male, female, whatever, and but why are children abusing 
their parents. There is an underlying reason there. And, and when I tell you, Andrew, that I have talked to children, I've talked to teens, I've talked to older people. I used to speak at a transformational hospital, you know, where you would self-check in or somebody would check you in for drug abuse or whatever. And in the room, I could have, say, uh, 25 patients in the room at a time. And standing before me would be, or sitting before me, because most of them were so sedated, they were like 16 years old all the way up to 70 years old. And I would talk to each one of them, and I'd say to the 70-year-old people, look over there, that used to be you at 16. 16-year-old, look over here, this could be yeah. you in 70. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, how did you get here? Do you see yourself in this scenario and the choices that you make? Because the people who have abused you are not checking in. They're not checking in to get help. They're sending you for help. They're sending you to counseling. But they're the ones who should be. But they think that this is normal. This is fine. I don't need to be in counseling. I don't need help. So they don't want to be helped. But they're sending you into counseling, and they're having you committed and having you um, think that you're the one that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's the way that you keep someone bound in this type of relationship is that if you keep them in a state of chaos to where they cannot think, they can't breathe, they can't sleep, they can't function, they just go into autopilot. They check out. Um, and, and, and go through cognitive dissonance. They start to disassociate from things, and they just function. They just yeah, are yeah. on autopilot trying to survive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this has to stop because I've, I've gone through training. I've attended seminars. I've attended webinars, and I hear people are still building this about it only happens to women. And if it does happen to men, the numbers are so small that it's not worth us talking about it. It's happening on a greater level, but nobody wants to hear it. And I will yeah. keep saying it, and I thank you so much. And any time that you have more time to come and be on this show, I would appreciate it so much because we're reaching people. There are people who are you know, reaching out to me uh, privately that don't want to talk. They aren't ready to talk. But they're yeah. glad that this conversation is happening. Yeah. And no, until we get to the point to where we can make changes in the law, this has yeah. to happen on, on the legislative level. This has to happen. It has to stop where you write something that's not just about women, but it's about a human being. No human being should be able to do X, Y, and Z to another human being without consequences. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. I thank you, and I want to give you the final six minutes. Say uh, whatever you want to promote. Talk about whatever you want to talk about. And, again, thank you, Andrew, for reaching across the water and being on Patricia Adams Live. You're welcome back anytime. And if there is anything that you could say to um, fathers that, in hindsight, that have children and you said something before. You said, you know, I left trying not to create drama. And then when everything that I thought that I could avoid it, I ended up having to face anyway. So if you know that you're going to end up having to face this anyway, then prepare now to lay your foundation. Prepare now yeah, to lay your foundation yeah. to get yeah. yourself 
and your children to safety because it's not fair to leave the children. I'm not talking about you, but I'm saying it is not fair to leave the children in an environment that was not good for you as an adult. If, If it wasn't good for you as an adult, it's not good for the children. No, absolutely. No, I mean, listen, no, it's been a pleasure to be on here and talk to you and really kind of uh, explore things in detail, you know, and um, no, it's it's been a real honor. It's it's great to connect with you across the pond. And, uh, you know, our countries have uh, enormous challenges, uh, political levels, coronavirus, social injustice, but we share a lot in common, you know, and a lot of positives as well uh, of, of people that want to, that want better, that, that want to create a better generation moving forward um i think you know the the one thing i would say to to anybody uh caught in in a situation of abuse and 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 they're trying to leave or or they have left and and there are children involved is in a family court to some degree from my experiences they care greatly about what you say to the children and what you say to your now ex-partner and so even if you're being provoked and goaded and, uh, you know, even if your ex-partner is behaving really badly and irrationally and unreasonably, make sure all your communication is squeaky clean. It's totally reasonable. Even if you're getting a torrent of abuse back, then save that torrent of abuse. File it somewhere so you can get it at a later date screenshot it but make sure anything that you send back is really gentle and polite and reasonable and focused on the children's best interest at all times because anything that you say on social media you go on to social media and have a bit of a rant about it it will bite you on the nose in the family courts and so i think that's my encouragement and and i get this with dads where uh, some of the dads that i work with where they have been in abusive relationships but they're now angry and so when they're dealing with like, you know, they can't see their kids. So they're sending, you know, really uh, angry texts. You know, it's about trying to rein that in and say, listen, you're the one that's going to look like you. You might have been the one that was abused, but put you in a family court. What's in writing? You're the one that looks abusive. So I think we have to try and make sure that our communication is clear and clean, that even if we are have unreasonable ex-partners that, when we're parenting our children as much as we can do, that we don't slander the other partner because it's not good for our children to hear that. We may think, well, listen, uh, our, our child, my child needs to know that his dad is a this and his mum is a that. But, you know, actually our children don't need to hear that. You know, we need to protect our children as much as we can. And, and frankly, if you get to a family court and your child is interviewed without you there, and they come out with things that you've said about dad or mum, and 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 it, they're they're not nice things. You're going to be in trouble at court. Let me tell you. And so uh, that's my encouragement. It, it's really complicated when you're trying to parent, co-parent. You've split up. Your ex-partner is abusive. They're still being a nightmare to deal with. It's still really hard. But make sure your communication to them is squeaky clean. And when you're talking to the kids. And they're asking you questions or you're trying to explain a new situation that you just you don't talk badly about your ex-partner. You, you keep it as neutral as, as you possibly can. That's all I can say. And, and lastly, for anyone that's, you know, that has found value in this. Listen, if you 
fancy watching my TED talk, TEDx talk, if you've got a spare 12 minutes, just punch in my name, Andrew Payne, into uh, YouTube and, and TEDx. And my surname is P-A-I-N, so it's an unusual spelling. And uh, I'd be honoured if you could watch it. But listen, uh, it's been great to be here and, and talk with you. And um, yeah, well, let, let, let's keep in contact and uh, do keep up the good work. Thank you for being on Patricia Adams Live. And to Andrew Payne, thank you so much for being a part of the show. And you're always welcome to come back again. And to those of you who are here in the States, happy 4th. Stay safe. Remember that we are in this together. And we will make it together. You're not alone. You will make it.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.